Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are getting into some pretty deep topics on Off the Couch, and we have Adam Hill joining us to talk about his own experience with anxiety and addiction and getting into triathlons and Ironmans. Adam gives a very compelling account about all of the above. But beyond that, I think this conversation really is about personal transformation and how difficult that can be and some of the mechanisms that can put us on the path to personal transformation. And for those reasons, I'm particularly excited to share this conversation with you. Now, one other thing, Adam is also the author of a book called Shifting Gears, which chronicles his journey and again, provides some important lessons and perspectives that I think any of us could use as we think about how we might each try to create better versions of ourselves. So that is what we have on tap for you today. Now let's get to my conversation with Adam Hill. Here we go. Well, Adam, how are you today and where are you today? I'm fantastic and I am in the snowy uh, valley actually down the hill from you, I think, uh, in uh, just outside of Denver, Colorado in Broomfield. Gotcha. Yeah. I have been there. We have heard of it. So how long have you been in Broomfield? Actually, not, a little less than a year now. So I came from San Clemente down in Southern California, uh, way down by the beach. And I lived there my whole life. And so recently, within the last year, I'm one of those California converts. So the one, the, the people you always hate. So I'm the person you hate, but I immediately changed my tags to the Colorado plates. Smart. So I think I'm safe. <laughs> plus, plus, you just seem way, way too nice to hate. So I think, I think, I think you're good. I don't think you're going to get any brushback. Okay. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I was trying to get away from, yeah, all of, yeah. So <laughs> I hope so. This is going to be an interesting conversation. And I think what I want to do is kind of just go ahead and get into it a bit. An important part of your story that we're going to be unpacking here, well, in a way, maybe starts with growing up with an anxiety disorder. Talk a bit about that and maybe talk a bit about growing up with something that you didn't know was a thing. Yeah. So I, when I when I grew up, uh, which was the 80s, 90s, I was a kid in the 80s, there was not a lot of talk, if any, on anxiety. You know, you didn't see a, a, the Sesame Street special episode on anxiety disorders or, or any kind of mental health issues, really. And so it wasn't really talked about a lot. Um, and, and so I grew up just kind of not really having what I would consider at this point, the, the very severe anxiety disorder. I was, I was kind of a worrier. I, I felt like I was a spaz. I didn't have a lot of like real, I wasn't really popular. I didn't have a lot of friends. And, you know, right now I can look back in retrospect and say, well, there was some social anxiety tendencies there because I just didn't really know how to communicate with peers and, and really just didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. And so that, that kind of played a role in my life as I just grew up feeling like I was, I was spazzy and, and just weird. And, and, and that, that was kind of the story of my young adolescent life. And in high school, I started coming out of my shell. I met some friends that I could relate to, you know, the nerds and, uh, and, you know, sat, got in the chess club, all those kinds of things. So I, I, I found something of a groove there. 
but there was still this kind of festering or this this subtle dormant uh, something underneath the skin, underneath the surface that was just there that didn't feel like I was comfortable with myself. It really came to a head in, in college. Um, and there's a bit of a chicken or the egg thing within my life because I started, like many college kids do, I started drinking in college to, to enjoy myself. And I, I very, very quickly discovered that alcohol uh, was a solution to my social ills. You know, I, I became, you know, more more outgoing, more extroverted and, and had more fun. And there were no consequences to it for me. I, you know, could have three beers in a night and call it quits and then go to bed. And it was, it didn't, there wasn't an immediate indication that there would be a problem with that. (laughs) And so, and, and it helped me to feel better, more comfortable in my skin at that time. So it became an immediate solution to me. So not, not a very good recipe for a, a, a young college kid who doesn't know that they have an anxiety disorder. But a, a couple of years into that, when I got into my early 20s and I was still in college, I began to experience very severe panic attacks. And, and it just came on like that, like a ton of bricks. Uh, one, the, my very first experience, I remember quite vividly that I was just sitting in my sitting in my apartment uh, studying for an exam. And I mean, you know, which is enough to cause anxiety in and of itself. You're studying for exams. But, uh, but in this case, it just hit me immediately that for no reason whatsoever, I just, I, 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 it came to me that I was HIV positive, but I'm not, but it just, that was the way it manifested. It was this weird random thing. And it, and all of the pieces seemed to fit together. Like, Oh, I have this new girlfriend or, you know, and, 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 you know, we haven't been tested or anything like that. So, so that hit me. And, and then I, I, and it hit me way, way, way harder than a thought like that should. I crumbled on the ground and just got became paralyzed with fear. And, you know, went to the, you know, got through that evening, very, very white knuckled um, and went to the doctor, you know, very shortly thereafter, found out I was okay, had that immediate sense of relief, like, oh, thank God that's over. And, and realizing that was really silly that you thought that. Why would you think that? There was no reason for you to think that. And then, uh, you know, it hit me a few weeks later that, you know, that, and this time it was something else. This time it was some other sickness or, or, or disease. And then, you know, it came something that was equally irrational. So things like started giving me these panic attacks where I was just, you know, tensing up. And then it was so it was almost like that dormant anxiety just released in that way. And it was a volcano erupting in, in that in that part of my life. And it was then that alcohol became more of a presence in my life because I realized that that killed the panic attack. It just eliminated it right away. What, I mean, what, what, what it was really doing was it was just suppressing all of that anxiety and was pushing it down. It wasn't taking it away. It was just, it was for that moment, taking it away. Um, and so I learned, you know, through that process of, of kind of, uh, of, of many times going to the doctors and, and finally getting to the root of, well, what's wrong with me that I did have a general, general anxiety disorder and, you know, got onto some treatment, started taking medication for it at some times, but by then I was already drinking by then that was already kind of the solution I was working with. And by then I was dependent on alcohol and, and, and continued down that path. So I continued on down a destructive path in my life with, with this cycle of anxiety and, and, and alcohol that just kind of kept snowballing into, into, into worse and worse parts of my life. And you mentioned 
kind of getting into college, maybe having three drinks, did the number of drinks start to ramp up to kind of achieve the same level of, say, masking of the anxiety? Yes, very quickly, and and really the 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 drinking it was it was more of uh, more of a binging thing for me. So I didn't I never got really into the whole uh, um, you know I, I need to wake up and, and drink immediately uh, until much later. Uh, at that at that first point, it was it it was very subtle because it felt like I was in control. But yeah, gradually over time, it ramped up and to the point where I needed more to feel better, and I needed more to feel like I was at the level other people were at normally. So that I would claim, or my friends would claim, is it was me having a quote unquote high tolerance for alcohol. When in reality, it was nothing healthy about it. I was by far just developing a very, very unhealthy relationship with uh, something that was very dangerous. So is there kind of a breaking point here? You're, you're playing this game and frankly, alcohol is kind of apparently working. Some of these, the masking is proving to be effective. Where does, where does this story change? Yeah. So it, it changed on a number of fronts. I mean, the first change obviously were, were and, and what they tell you when you go through recovery, which I did later on, uh, it, it's a, and it really resonated with me was that first it's fun. So it's fun to drink. It's, you know, you, you have fun with it. Then it's fun with problems, meaning you, it's still fun to drink, uh, but you're having these subtle problems. And that was certainly the next step for me. I would be outside and I would get caught with a, a drink in my hand and the cops would harass me a little bit and I would go home or, you know, I would, I would get in a, 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 a verbal fight with my roommates or something like that. So, and, but then it's just problems, meaning it's not even fun anymore. And and that's what it became after just a few short years. It didn't take long to get there, uh, but once it got there, I would and I was constantly. I felt like I had this part of me that I had to keep up, or else things would get much, much worse. But it was almost like it was it was a uh, um, a piece of me, and if and I couldn't stop. It was this this, this dependence, and. Uh, so I would start to create these rules for myself to try to make sure that I would not, you know, would, would not, so I could convince myself that I didn't have a problem and that I could maintain some semblance of control. Cause that's what really this was all about. It's, it's, it's just, it's all about wanting to be in control of something that I don't have control over. Uh, so I, I, I set these rules for myself. I, you know, won't drink before 5 PM. I won't drink on a work night. I, you know, I, and I, I won't do these things and, and, and so I was like kind of this alcoholic gremlin, you know, don't get them wet or you're going to turn into a gremlin. The one rule I would never, ever, ever break was I would never drink and drive because I hated those people. It was something I hated. And, um, and, and I just, I couldn't imagine myself putting, being put in that position. It just wasn't who I was. And truly as a person, as a person in my values, it's, it's, it's not who I strive to be. It's not who I, I want to be, but that, but every single one of those rules I broke, including that last one that I told, said I'd never break. And when I broke that last one and, and, I, and I, I got into a DUI accident um, and um, uh, fortunately nobody was hurt. Nobody was, nobody was killed. And, you know, by grace, we, every, everybody was okay except for property damage. But it absolutely broke the foundation of, of, of what I believed at that point, which was believing that I could somehow try to control this, 
that immediately told me that I have no control over this. And, and now I'm not only a danger to myself, which I was fine with, I'm a danger to other people. And I have no control over that when I'm drinking. And so that was that was really the, the first moment that I was willing to uh, uh, do whatever it took to get sober. And that, that was first and foremost was I just have to be I have to be sober before I fix any other part of my life. Okay, so where are we in your narrative? When when do you have this realization? Like, I thought I could control this thing. Turns out I can't. Where are we? So we are we are in uh, this is all the way from college into my early adult life where I'm starting to work. So I got out of college. I started getting into the work, uh, uh, the work mode. And that was, you know, a, a, a different transition. I was I was a bartender for a while while, while I was in college. So that was a That was a career that really facilitated the drinking mm-hmm. lifestyle. Yep. <laughs> and um, and so I did that for, uh, you know, for a couple of years. And then I went immediately into working for a family, my family's business, the you know fourth generation uh, family company, where I it was a nine to five kind of thing. So the dynamic completely shifted, and so that's when the rules started coming into play. And that was that was in the early two thousands uh, where where that started. And for about the next decade, uh, I was really managing that that trying to manage and control that lifestyle, um, and and considering myself. One of the one of the reasons I would consider myself or at that time I would have considered myself to be in control of it was that I was quote unquote functional. We always mm-hmm. hear that term functional alcoholic, yeah. and really, really, that's that's there's that's kind of a misnomer in some ways because of course there's people are functioning because they they want to maintain that semblance of a control just as I did, and I wanted to maintain that, so I'm going to do everything I can to do that. And, and, and so I was, uh, so for most people who are, who are struggling with alcohol or addiction, it's almost, you know, you, you almost can't see it. I mean, and, and for a while I was, I was trying to keep that charade going where I was just keeping it quiet, not letting anybody know. Of course, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, she knew, and she was, she was aware she would, uh, uh, give me the ultimatums every once in a while to, to go and get help. And that's, why I would go in, try to get help for a while, and then it wouldn't work because I wasn't as willing. Um, but she is by far the most patient and you know wonderful woman on the planet for supporting me. I'm trying to pay that back every day. Huh. <laughs> yeah, boy, here's here's to the patient people in our lives. Yes, hmm. indeed. Yeah. Okay, we haven't said a word yet about any sport or activity other than drinking and chess. um what was your workout life or your running life like you know we're we're now up into your where are we are we we're into your mid-20s late 20s mid to late 20s yeah yeah Yeah, that that was really when i was into a lot of that anxiety trying to trying to get my life started and trying to really really not just getting it started but constantly future tripping on what I wanted to be in the future and as far as sports or, or or taking care of myself that part really fell into the rules category of rules I would try to set for myself and so in order to 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 try to offset you know the unhealthy habits and really to to because I've I've heard in the past well you should probably exercise if you want to help it helps with anxiety well it doesn't help with anxiety when you're smoking cigarettes and drinking very heavily. 
I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but but I, I I was you know I was doing things like the ninety day programs, trying looking at people with six pack abs, trying to trying to get that, and failing miserably at that kind of stuff. I was constantly injured, and I don't come from a sports background. I um, I say I was uh, uh, I was the second string bench warmer for a team that went zero and ten in high school for a baseball team that went zero and ten in high school. I don't know how I made that baseball team, by the way. I, I, but I, I was on it and, um, <laughs> I was sitting there, but that, that was really the extent of my, of my, uh, uh, athletic career. And then, so I would, I would do things like the 90 day programs. I would sign up for five or 10 Ks and maybe the occasional half marathon to try and really push it. So I would complete a couple of those, but, uh, but it wasn't fun for me. It was always just like, go hard or go home and try to, or try to really push it. And, uh, uh, and, and so I, I, I got this, uh, I, I developed this mindset that I really hated exercise, but I felt like I had to do it because it just always hurt. It was always painful. I was always injured, but I had to do it because it was, it helped anxiety. And I was, uh, um, you know, I was trying to offset the drinking and, and set a new role for myself. So, so that was the extent of it, but it, yeah, it, I, I didn't get into any kind of real like committed physical fitness and really start to enjoy it until I went through recovery, which, you know, really followed that accident. I, I um, that at that point, knowing that I was broken, knowing I needed to, knowing I needed that I was sitting in a jail cell, um, you know, that night, really after blackout drunk driving, uh, not knowing what had happened, you know, not knowing that I hadn't hurt somebody huh. or, or done that. And just sitting there, it was it was the one instance in my life where, you know, I had thought to myself that I maybe I shouldn't be here on the earth. Maybe I should. Maybe I should end it. And those were really that that was the that was the choice that was in front of me at that point was I either have to end my life because I'm a danger to others or I can lean into really getting help and make that first in my life. And that's the choice I leaned into. So you make a choice. Um thankful for the, the, the path you chose. So then let's talk about, did you go through a 12 step program, like go through all of that and then later start getting into these, you know, a, say, let's say a healthier relationship, a better relationship with physical activity, or were those two things happening simultaneously? No, I, I, I did. Yeah. So I got uh, sober first. That was the first priority. And one of the things I always heard in early in recovery, you know, I heard this early because, you know, I, I, I had that moment, like when I got in there, I'm like, all right, I need to get sober. I want to do this. You know, how do I do this and stay with it? I got to make all these life changes and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and I would always hear, well, you know, just hold your horses, take the steps one step at a time and don't make any major life changes for the first year of recovery. Just don't make any major life changes. And because I have an obsessive personality, the way I heard that was after a year, once you hit a year of sobriety, make a major life change. <laughs> so, I, um, uh, so I had that in my head for that first year. But for that first year of sobriety, I really focused on it and put it first. Because any other attempt at, at trying to uh, get sober in the past where, you know, I, I'd had these moments of a few weeks, maybe a couple months at a time where I would, I would know I'm, I've got a problem and I've got to get sober. Uh, I would always have it in the back of my mind but at, where it was like, well, yeah, but I have responsibilities. I have a family. I have work. I have these things. And if, if sobriety ever got in the way of that, which was a crazy way to think, well, I couldn't, I couldn't just keep going to AA. 
uh, which was the choice that I made. To go, I made the choice to go to AA. Um, and so when I, uh, this time around, it was like, well, I won't have a job. I won't have a family. I won't have a life now if I don't stay sober. So that is first. That's before anything else. It's before my family. It's before, you know, it's before my job. And I know that sounds horrible to say like before my family. But again, if I don't have it, I don't have, I can't be any good to anybody. I'm, a, I'm I could be harmful to them. So, um, that's where I went really in that first year was just digging in and going every single day to, uh, and getting involved in recovery. Okay. The trick here though, cause you've already described this really well. You've talked about how effective alcohol was at masking your anxiety. So now you've gone cold Turkey. What is happening with your anxiety for this year of this first year in recovery? That's a great, a great question. And, uh, and it's an interesting dynamic within my anxiety because I, as I'd mentioned before, with the, the root of my panic attacks were always irrational. There were always these things that, that weren't even a problem or should not even be on my radar with regard to what's going to be a problem. But if something actually happens and, and, and I'm in the midst of it, like, and I'm going through these legal troubles and, and the answer is so obvious to me that it's just, okay, now I just, now I just do it. But really in, in that instance, there were a couple of things that really helped with my anxiety. And I realized this later on that, that things like 12 step programs or, or recovery programs, the, the, the framework that those are around also help with things like anxiety. And I, I, I don't know this from personal experience, but I would imagine it helps with other kinds of mental uh, disorders as well, because I immediately immersed myself into a community of support. And that community had shared experiences. I mean, you know, alcohol, alcohol is, a, is, is a symptom. It's not the actual root of the problem. So a lot of people struggled with the same problems I did. And so I could find a community that related to me. It immediately validated the fact that, hey, what you're going through is, is something that people go through. And it's okay. There is a way. And so that in and of itself was, was helpful. Going through these steps of, of you know, the, the 12 steps with, of, of all of these inventories helped me to come to the conclusion that I, it helped that it really alleviate a lot of that anxiety too. So a lot of that work that I was doing to get sober was, it wasn't just, you know, kind of white knuckling it and going cold turkey like I would the past. It was doing the work and doing the right work to help my mindset become more, more empowered. So, so it got to the point where I realized that what I did was shameful you know, when I, what I did. And so I, dealing with that shame was a big, big part of it. And that's where, you know, a lot of, uh, 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 you know, somewhat that, that anxiety kind of shifted into a little bit of feeling more of that uh, low grade depression kind of stuff. Cause it was, there was shame there, there was guilt, but I also recognized that that made me realize that, okay, well, whatever I face from a legal standpoint, if I go to jail because of this, or, or if anything happens, I, that that's, you know, that was earned because of what I did. And I have to accept that. And that acceptance, that radical acceptance was also helpful in reducing the anxiety. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody talk about that, like that that framework that is provided can actually be very beneficial, not just in helping a person get over certain addictions, but just in dealing with providing that framework and structure that can be beneficial in and of itself. Yeah, it it, it really was. And it became a framework for you know, what I would, how I reframed anxiety completely in my life after I started doing, 
you know, getting into triathlon and doing more of that stuff, I, I realized that, Hey, a lot of that stuff, a lot of that anxiety I was experienced was the, the anxiety, the fear and the panic attacks were just a symptom of, you know, that deep, you know, stuff that's going on in my head, the obsessive personality or, or all of these other, uh, uh, things that come along with anxiety, but those things can also be superpowers that, you know, the obsessive focus that I had, like the obsession that was like, I had, I, I'm obsessed with alcohol or, the, or obsessive thoughts, those kinds of things can be obsessive focus and help me to get into a flow state and actually do that more effectively. Or, you know, that hyper awareness of, of everything that's happening around me in social situations can turn into some kind of empathy or, or compassion where I really actually have deep feelings for what other people might be feeling. So it is almost like I looked looked at those and reframed it into what is the alternative superpower of everything I'm experiencing, and and that came that had its roots in twelve steps in the twelve step programs. Can you say more about that? So, like, just in your own experience, so how did you start thinking through the like the answers to your question? So, what are my superpowers? Like, how did that actually start to unfold for you? I, I really realized it. Kind of later on, once I got, and I might be skipping ahead here, but once we, once I kind of got into the Ironman training and I was, I was sitting on a trainer, uh, on a bike trainer, doing a five hour bike ride on a trainer. And wow. I remember hearing from people when I, when I do that, people like, how could you sit on a trainer for five hours? Yeah. And I'm just like, I just, I just get on and I focus and it, and it just, it's actually my happy place. I enjoy that because I'm alone. I'm doing deep work and, and it's just something I can obsessively focus on. And the second I started saying obsessive focus, I was like, okay, there's that obsessive nature there. But so that was bad, you know, when I was drinking, but here it's, it's contributing to something that's good that I can do that not a lot of other people do. So that made me realize that it was kind of that aha moment of, of, all right, well, where do you, where do other things like that exist where there's something that is really, really negative that, that we experience as pain or something that we experience as, as negative that can be reframed into something that's more positive? And so it, it was it was that was a real empowering moment for me. But it, it was in the midst of already having kind of gone through a lot of that work. Yeah. Within within the AA and, and those kinds of steps. So, OK, so you've already kind of hinted at this. You make it through one year of recovery and then you're like, all right, time for big changes right now. Is your five hours on the trainer, does this happen after the one year or is this prior to the one year? Yeah, that, that came quite a bit after the, the one year. Okay. <laughs> so okay. I, wor I worked my way, I, I worked my way up to that. Okay. I was, I was way out of shape in a year of sobriety. I was, I was focused so intently on my mental and spiritual uh, uh, recovery that I didn't focus on my you know, my physical well-being. <laughs> I was, uh, I was still smoking, still you huh. know, eating terribly. This really um, surprises me actually, like, mm -hmm. I guess about you personally, you, it seems like you just seem like the sort that would have been like, all right, I'm doing this. And yes, I've, I've heard you say recovery is first, first thing it's before family. And you've already explained that. Well, you just seem like the type though, that would have already I guess, I guess you already answered this question when you were told, don't start making a bunch of other changes. You took that mm -hmm. real seriously. I did. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, 
looking back, it, it was the superpower. Once I have my mindset on one thing, I focus like uh, I focus on it. I'm intent on it, and and that that went to you know back in and back in high school, I played the cello, you know, because that was another thing I could do alone, and I could just do. I played that thing for like three or four hours a day, and I got really good at it. It was just the it, it was my zone, and I knew that I can get into flow state that way. And I just got and without knowing it, without knowing what that was in my life, I just got into that flow state with recovery because I knew I have to do this. So I'm going to go straight in. I just got into that flow state over, over that, that year and, and longer. I mean, I stayed, obviously stayed in, in recovery and, and continued to go, go in past that first year. But in, in that first year, yeah, I was still smoking. I wasn't focused on my physical health. I told you I'd kind of dabbled in, in the fitness world. I'd, I'd done up to a half marathon in the past, just, you know, and, and had these, what I would call fits of fitness, but they didn't last. And it, for this, that, that year preceding or that year of recovery, I didn't focus on that at all. It was not about a year of, of sobriety though, that I, I was recovering from a shoulder surgery, which was kind of repairing some of the damage that I'd done in my past. And, uh, I had a torn labrum, uh, and I was recovering from that surgery. And if I, well, I'll take a step back because the seed for Ironman was planted many, many, many years prior about, you know, maybe a decade before that, or, or many years before that, I, when I saw the Ironman World Championship on television, I, for the first time, was watching it on, on television. And, you know, I saw Hawaii, this, this beautiful backdrop of this amazing race. I, hear, I heard the announcer start, start talking about, you know, these distances uh, in, in his typical Al Trotwag uh, kind of voice. Uh, you know, 2.4 miles of swimming, 112 miles of biking and 26 mile marathon. And you're just like, wow, that those, those distances sound insane. And it just drew me in. And it like, I, I just felt this like energy around it that just came into me. And I saw all these people finishing it. And I, I was just thinking, well, these are just crazy Australians that, that do this on Tuesday afternoons. Right. You know, they're not, that's just, that's not what normal people do. But I saw normal people finishing the race. Like, you know, they were, they were of all different ages, all different, you know, sizes, all different types of people finishing. And, and it was like, well, wow, you know, all these kinds of people are finishing it. What if I could do that? And like, I asked that question and as quickly as that question came into my mind, that, that twinge of fear came up, that twinge of fear at that time that I didn't know how to handle or that, that I didn't have the mindset to address in the right way. And I leaned back into comfort. I told myself, you could never do something like that. That's not you. Don't even think about that. Why would you be able to do something like that? That's crazy. That's what, that's what those people do. You're not that. Um, so I never thought about it again until, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, kind of stayed in my alcoholism and all that kind of stuff until I had that year of sobriety where I was thinking to myself, I've got to make a major life change now. I've, and the next step for me is I feel like crap the way I, I, I feel like crap the way that my physical body is, is while so I've worked on my mindset for, for all this and my spiritual nature for all this time. And then I, now I, I, I want to work on my physical body. So I, um, so just in kind of thinking about that, it came back to me that this, this, this race, and I started thinking about it again. I, I remembered how excited I felt about it, how empowered it, I, I felt like by watching all these people. And I asked myself the same question at that time. Well, wouldn't that be cool if I could do something like that? And my mind was in the place where when that fear popped up, my mind was in a more empowered place to say, well, yeah, what if you could do that? 
And so I leaned into that, you know, research and find out, I think I'm going to go do that. So I, I decided, I made the decision there that that would be, you know, something I would want to focus on. And my mind being obsessive, I obsessively focused on it. I started researching it and, uh, and started digging in. And I was also very embarrassed about the idea. I mean, I was, I was not in Iron Man shape. This was out of character for me. <laughs> I didn't, I, I wasn't a swimmer, you know, I, I don't, I don't swim in the ocean. I mean, I surfed a bit, but I never really like swam or, and, and I've never owned a road bike. So what are people going to think of me when I say I'm going to do an Ironman? They're going to think I'm crazy. Um, and they're going to laugh at me. And that was my worst fear is somebody, you know, who's, who's, you know, hypersensitive to that I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me, of course. So, of course, I went to the safest bet I could go to, which which was my wife, and I told her all about this, you know, idea of like I want to do an Ironman. I think it would be kind of fun, you know. Maybe it's maybe it's something that I could just do for fun. And I thought that she would say, "Don't. Why don't you just focus on a five k for now? So you don't have to go out and do something that hard." And but she came back and she said, "No, no, you should do that." And I'm like, "Oh shit! Now I got to do it." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So. Okay, so, you know, sometimes stories like this, the next step is, so I went to the store, I bought some pair of running shoes, and then I just walked out my front door and ran 12 miles, came home and then couldn't walk for, you know, two weeks. It sounds so far like you were a bit more methodical than that. And so maybe you didn't do the like insane excitement, enthusiasm, I'm just going to throw myself out there and then from there start to actually figure out how one ought to approach something like an Ironman. Mm -hmm. You took a more yeah. calculated methodical approach. Yeah. Thank goodness because <laughs> I had to. And and that was the great thing. That was, that was the real uh, 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 miracle around this part of it was the fact that since I was injured, I wasn't allowed to go out and like, just go out and start running or start biking or start swimming. Because if I was, my personality would have gone out and, and, and stuck to the old way of thinking that I had, which was go out and do it hard. And then, you know, cause that's, that was the way I always exercised in the past, but instead I, I was, I had to take it slow. I had to take it easy. And so I, uh, I started researching online. Well, how do you train for an Ironman? So I did that first and I came across what was called, uh, I came across the iron war first, which the iron war in, in Ironman triathlon between Mark Allen and Dave Scott was this many years, it, it was it was one race, but it was many years in the making. Mark Allen continued to lose to Dave Scott in the Ironman World Championship. And he couldn't crack that nut. He was an amazing triathlete, but he couldn't crack the Ironman World Championship nut until he got with a coach named Phil Maffetone who taught him the value of heart rate training and training really easy in your aerobic zone, uh, basically under your maximum aerobic heart rate and then developing your your fat burning engine and and then you know once that's fully conditioned then running the race and and you know as fast as you can and 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 doing it and then so that year at the Ironman World Championship Mark Allen beats Dave Scott for five more Ironman World Championships Mark Allen wins it uh, until he re ends up retiring later on and so that spoke to me because that was like okay so here's a guy that was doing stuff too hard now he's doing it easy Maybe there's something to that. So I started kind of digging into the Maffetone method and starting off that way. And literally my triathlon career started with just going out the door and taking walks because that's all I could do. God, yes. I wish <laughs> I wish that was 
more people's story, right? The power of the easy walk, right? Yes. Oh, oh 100%. Yeah. And, and that was so beautiful too because many people look at that with this sense of impatience like, oh, so boring walking around the neighborhood. But if you really do that with this this purpose, this sense of like I'm going to really enjoy it and look around and just appreciate it. I, it becomes such an amazing part of the day. It becomes a meditation, and you could see that that in and of itself was the was another uh, uh, antidote for the anxiety piece because it was that meditation for me. It became purpose, purposeful. Yeah, I I'm going to share this anecdote with you. I've talked about this previously on Off the Couch, but um, about four years ago, I I broke my neck very badly in a backcountry skiing accident, and um, thankfully had a successful surgery but one of those surgeries where the surgeon said like if things go wrong you're going to wake up paralyzed or or you know be a quadriplegic and thankfully the surgery went well but um you know had this hardware installed in my neck and then they're just like don't fall don't do anything like be boy in a bubble type thing and that was the really only time in my entire life, honestly, certainly my adult life, where all I could do was go on walks. And it would start at like 15 minute walks. And by the way, we are not talking beautiful trails and scenic places, nothing off camber, no roots. Because again, they're like, if you fall, even a little mild fall, and this hardware moves, we're going back and doing this surgery all over again, and you're going to run the same risks. And for me, those periods where now literally the only activity level I have is the walk, like on even sidewalks. I sometimes say like, I don't really have a drug history, but that felt like drugs, like just the ideas firing you know, and so I think my experience of it was maybe a little bit less of the kind of the meditative contemplative thing and more just like the explosion of ideas. But I came, I, I still, I mean, you can hear how excited I get talking about this period of my life where it was such a valuable time of life. And now, of course, I'm an idiot and I'm back like skiing gnarly lines and like riding a mountain bike way too fast and blowing up on that thing and, you know, breaking ribs and the rest. But I just wish that more people, it, I share this in the hope that if it, if it inspires anyone to get out to do the simple walk, please do it for the reasons that you've well articulated and maybe for what I'm saying. But um, man, there is a power and a beauty and a simplicity in it um, that, it sounds like means a lot to at least the two of us. A hundred percent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and it's nice to find a kindred spirit on that front because I would I would say that we replace the January, uh, you know, the January first resolution with a July or a June first. Mm. You know, let's start walking. Yes. And so by the time you get to the end of the year, you're in in the best shape of your life. Mm. I would guarantee it if you could stay consistent with that. Is walking? It's it's. I mean, just starting there, starting with the step that you're at. I'm, I'm such a firm believer now after what I've been through that really anything is possible from where you're at, from where you want to be. If you just start with a very, very simple step yeah. and, and take that first easy step. Yeah. All right. So you, sorry for that long tangent, but <laughs> um, so you start with the simple walk 
and then talk a bit about your progression. Yeah. So I, I, so I immediately, uh, you know, with, with my arm still in a sling, um, I signed up for Ironman Cabo, our Ironman Los Cabos, which was going to happen a year later. Uh, so that was going to be, uh, so this was about March of 2013. I, I had the surgery, I think in January of 2013, uh, which was my first year of, first year of sobriety. And then, so I, I'd signed up for Ironman Los Cabos to happen in, in March of 2014. And then I had no clue what I was doing, so I decided to build a parachute on the way down, essentially, after I jumped out of the plane. And I, uh, so so really the first step was, it, after walking, of course, was continue to learn, like, what I had to do. How do I train? How do I even do this thing? And so I read a lot of books. One of the one of the first books I read, which was really valuable to me, was Be Iron Fit by Dan Fink. He uh, um, So he writes a really good beginner kind of uh, with, with a plan and with how to, how to structure that. Um, and, and that, that helped me. And I also went right to the source. You know, I, I, I saw, I was inspired by Mark Allen's story and, you know, by the fact that he shipped it up. So I decided just to look him up to see, you know, who's his coach. Maybe he has a coach that, that is coaching. Turns out Mark Allen was a coach. <laughs> so I was perfect, uh, perfect thing. So I, I actually signed up with his online program to, uh, uh, to get some coaching, to, to get that guidance and, and he used the Maffetone method, of course. So that was like the perfect blend was to find that that plan and that framework because the frameworks and the plans and the, and the coaching really do work if you're committed to them. And so I did that. I, I, you know, I bought my first triathlon bike and I very awkwardly tried to learn how to ride in the aero bars. And by the July, by July of that year, I did my first sprint triathlon and it was really then that first finish line that I, that I'd crossed, um, be, because that morning I was terrified. I mean, getting out in front of the ocean, I'd, I'd done some open water swims, of course, but this was different. I was going to go through the waves. I was going to swim out into the ocean. I was going to be amongst 200 other people at a time. And I was going to have to do this thing. But once I, and, and that terror, that anxiety, that, that fear, I, I, uh, I realized you know, once I got into the water and once I started swimming, that that became excitement. And that was the next kind of antidote to the anxiety that I saw from the sport that I learned was that I could have all this panic, all this fear, all this, all this stuff going on. And that's okay. That's, that's, that's not something I want to suppress. It's what I want to experience is the energy, but I want to turn that energy into something that is going to help propel me forward. And it did just that on that day. By the time I got to my finish line, I was more euphoric than I'd ever felt in my life to have finished something like this. Mm-hmm. Three sports in a day, something yeah. I never thought that I'd do. I hugged the guy next to me mm-hmm. and he was like, who the heck are you <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, and yeah, so I was I was hooked in. I'm like, I'm so glad I can't wait to do this Ironman uh, coming up. So graduated to an Olympic distance triathlon a little bit later. Then I graduated to a half distance in December. And then in March, I did my first full and, um, and it was during that time, of course, that I didn't really just want to do the Ironman. I wanted to do the Ironman world championship. That's the one I saw on TV. That's the one I, that was in my mind. Like I want to do that. And that was the one that I was always afraid to tell people that I wanted to do because that's the real thing that they, you don't have any experience in triathlon. You don't have any experience in endurance sport. How are you going to do the Ironman world championship? Um, uh, but I really wanted to get there and I was going to, I was going to figure out how to, how to get there. So that was my goal after that first Ironman was to figure out how I could, I could build, build that other 10% of fitness that I needed. So 
in that first year, I, once I got, once I finished my first Ironman, that was essentially the experiment. If I could do it, you know, and I did it and I think I finished in the top third of, of the age group that, that I was in. And so once I did that, um, I, I realized that, okay, I think there's a shot that I can do it. If I just work harder, if I, I, I finished in 10 hours and 45 minutes, and I think the timing to get to Kona would have, at that race was about nine and a half hours to nine hour nine, nine hours, 45 minutes, something like that. And so I realized, okay, so I just have to find 10% time. I have to find that 10%. So that was the goal over the next uh, three years was to find that um, until I did. Keep going. This is good. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, just going to cheer you along. Sure, sure. So the next race I did, I did, I did. Uh, Ironman Boulder, you know, kind of continued on that progression. And then of course there's peaks and valleys. So those first few races, I was making, making improvements. Then I plateaued and then I kind of went a little bit backward, you know, for the next uh, couple of races. So I had done four at that point. And, um, and then I, I went into five and six and made some pretty dramatic improvements there. Um, that was really because I started implementing some more power stuff. Now, I wasn't just doing the Maftone method heart rate. I started incorporating a little more power, just sprinkling it in and realizing that training for a triathlon for me, training for the Ironman was like baking a cake. You know, a lot of the flour, of course, is the aerobic training, but that sugar, that little bit of sugar is is that uh, harder effort. And if I could push that really hard, that was the good balance that I could I could bring. So I started getting a lot, you know, faster and, and I was, became really obsessed with making sure that I had a great relationship with nutrition. One of the things I saw with a lot of athletes was that, that especially amateur athletes, uh, was that they were incredibly restrictive in their diets. And that was one of the things that I, I felt was a little bit offsetting was because they're getting into the sport because they want to get healthier or they want to lose weight or things like that. And so they're combining restricting their diet with uh, uh, with a, an event that they're burning, you know, five or six thousand calories in. It's just that's just that's not productive. So I knew I didn't want to do that. So I knew that my 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 calorie counts would have to go up and, and all of that. And I would have and I and so I changed the changed the the way the framing of which I looked at diet from something like okay I got to be on a diet or or I have this restriction to develop a healthy relationship with nutrition. And that's really what I did was just, I tried to eat more cleanly. I tried to eat, eat, eat more of the things that were enriched by the sun and the soil and fewer of the things that were, you know, were, were farther away from that or processed in a factory. And, you know, lo and behold, that kind of simple approach, it works as does, you know, the simple approach of, of, you know, trying to run easy and, 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 and do that. Uh, so those things combined, and I, I made a lot of progress in those next couple of races where I got down to, you know, within a couple of slots of, of getting there to Kona. Um, so I, I was really close, but I was also starting to burn out a little bit. <laughs> it was, you know, this was six races down and I um, uh, decided uh, that I was going to take a break for a bit. But my wife discovered this casting call for this show that was going to be on NBC Sports called Iron Man Quest for Kona. <laughs> And it happened to be the exact uh, storyline that I was trying to pursue. So I decided to audition for it. My wife, you know, encouraged me, as she typically does, to do that. Uh, And I, uh, so I decided to audition for it. I put together a very silly video of me and my Speedo just doing the entire interview and and doing all of these scenes for it. And, uh, you know, long story short, I ended up up getting cast for it. Um, And so then... 
the accountability became stronger. It was like, okay, well now I'm going to, I'm going to do this race on this show. They're going to be, they're going to be following along with me with, with cameras. And there, and my race is going to define if this is going to be kind of a, a, the, the, uh, a successful journey or, or something that's going to be shown where I don't succeed. And, uh, and so I, I trained, you know, more diligently, more disciplined than I ever had for that seventh race. And, um, and, and yeah, so at that, at that seventh race in Santa Rosa was, it was Ironman Santa Rosa in 2017. I was waiting in the car, waiting for, waiting to go down to the transition area before jumping in the water and starting my race, knew that the cameras were down in the transition area waiting for me. And I just had this overwhelming sense of these two competing feelings, immense gratitude for what I get to do right now. And then immense fear because that's where my mind is. My mind has this immense anxiety. And so I just broke down into my wife's, you know, and I'm just, I just, you know, told her that moment of weakness that I'm like, you know, I, I don't know if I can do this. This is just going to be, I mean, this is just, you know, it, it's, it's so overwhelming. Um, and of course, you know, I just, I said, okay, well, I'm going to walk down there and I'm going to let the fear come up. I'm going to experience it. I'm going to let these emotions happen. And then when I cross over into that transition area, I'm going to, I'm going to put on my game face and I'm going to do the work and I'm going to take it one step at a time as I always have got to, you know, got in there, got into my bike, got into the water full of that, that panic that I had in that first race that I ever did. The, 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 uh, the triathlon was still there as we're waiting to get in the water. Then, you know, we get into the water and then once I get in there, panic and the anxiety dissipates and it's all just work. I get out of the water, um, and I get onto my bike, uh, do the bike and I, I get through the run. I, once I get onto the run portion, uh, my family tells me that I'm in, in fifth place. Uh, and, um, that really got me motivated because I needed to be in the top three or four to be able to qualify. So I found myself passing a couple of more people and didn't really know where I was at, but as I was finishing the race, I was finishing alone and I, I just got this sense that I was, I was, I, I was winning the race. I just felt like I was winning this, this race. turns out that I, I didn't win, but just that feeling of, of, of feeling like I did, um, uh, was, uh, was, you know, just this overwhelming sense. I, and I crossed the line and they told me I got third place and that was good enough for Kona cameras on me. My, my daughter got to put the medal over my, over my neck. It's the most amazing experience of my life to be able to experience that, to go from where I had come from, you know, in an uncontrolled, unable to control my life, unable to control who I was or, or, or this, this, this relationship with alcohol, this toxic relationship that I had that was suppressing my anxiety to the point where I crashed my car into somebody else that wasn't expecting it on that day and that didn't deserve it to somebody, to, to a person that was crossing the finish line in an Ironman triathlon that was able to get a, a medal over, over his neck by, by his daughter that, you know, was able to be with him. I mean, just that, uh, you know, it, it was this amazing sense of grace that, you know, I, I don't deserve it, but gosh, I'm grateful for it. And, you know, it, 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 and that, you know, with that, I, and it's that experience that just makes me so passionate about wanting to share this with people openly about what I've gone through is because I just want to share with people that have that sense of hopelessness that feel hopeless. I know what that hopelessness feels like to feel like there's no other option 
but the miracle that is on the other side of life is just so intense and so amazing that I, I just hope nobody, I hope they don't give up on that, on that idea because it is just that powerful. So talk a little bit about some of the things that you have done and are doing in terms of sharing this message that you just talked about. Yeah. I, I, well, first off, I, I did write a book called Shifting Gears uh, from Anxiety and Addiction to a Triathlon World Championship. And it really does, it, it's, it's, that's really the story that I'm putting out there right now. It's just a clumsy, clumsy guy's journey from those, those things into, uh, uh, into triathlon and, and, and anything else. But um, so I, I'm, I'm very active on, uh, on that front, on social media, on, on jumping on podcasts like here and speaking and, and doing engagements like that to be able to really share about, uh, uh, about the fact that there's life beyond that feeling of hopelessness or that feeling of, of lack of control. There's really ways that we can turn anxiety into a superpower if we look at those kinds of things. Can I ask you, I mean, how is the anxiety today? Does this still feel very much like a kind of daily battle or something like you are daily working to control or has it somehow become easier than that? It's, I would say it's not, it's definitely not easier. It's still there. And, um, and I, I live with it. And that was one of the things that empowered it for me is the fact that now I can recognize it as something that's not going to go away. But there's something that's necessary. I mean, fear exists in our life for a reason. You know, if 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 we're missing fear in our lives, then we're in trouble. You know, that that's 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 the area where kind of psychopaths live. You know, no fear. Uh, so fear is a necessary emotion. For me, it's amplified. You know, and, and to the point where it's anxiety. It feels like there's butterflies, or my mind's constantly going, or things like that. But I've learned to I've learned to adapt my life in such a way that that living with it is, is fully available. I have, so I don't try to suppress it anymore. It's that's, that's not the goal. Suppression is, is where, you know, that's where alcohol comes into play and, and things like that. That's where toxic kind of relationships happen. Instead, I try to work with it and understand what it's trying to tell me. Uh, I, I spend, uh, I spend two hours in the morning just kind of priming myself of, of, getting familiar with how I'm feeling, you know, through meditation, through breathing work and through all of those things. Um, so yeah, the, the anxiety to answer your question is still there. I, and I would say that I've experienced more difficult, more challenging, more emotionally draining experiences in my life of sobriety than I had before when I was drinking. Uh, but I've been able to deal with them and I've been able to, uh, uh, to get through them in a very, very positive way because of how I've, I've changed my relationship with anxiety. Talk to me about Extra Life Fitness. Yeah, Extra Life Fitness was really born out of the same kind of, uh, uh, the same kind of feeling I had when I first got started. I recognized when I got started in triathlon, there were a few things that happened uh, uh, to me. A, I was very intimidated about getting started in triathlon. I mean, not owning a road bike, not knowing where to start, I, I was afraid to walk into a bike shop uh, to, to talk to people in there. Uh, and so I wanted to a provide a safe place for beginners to come to really to really learn and, and get the experience they needed as beginners. Uh, many, many people too 
uh, when their beginners jump into the deep end, you know, pun intended, uh, but they jump into to the the really more complex, more challenging stuff, and they start getting into the questions. What I really want to address for a lot of the beginners is that is that simple ninety percent that's going to demonstrate get the 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 biggest results because that's what I learned when I first started getting out and walking for the first time. You know. Doing it, that was the first experience of aerobic fitness that I was doing. And I was realizing that was starting to condition what I needed to condition. It was really simple, but it was highly effective. And it brought 90% of the fitness that I needed. So um, so that's where Extra Life comes in. It helps to help beginners get started in triathlon. Just a couple more questions here. You've talked about your wife, who you were with before she was your wife, and you know, express a lot of gratitude for her patience. I think sometimes in life, um, there are very good reasons to stick by a person. And frankly, sometimes there are good reasons not to. I'm very curious if your wife were here, why she would say that she chose to hang in there. That's a good question. I ask myself that a lot. I don't know what you would say today. <laughs> um, I, I do know that um, that a the for the for the first part, the disease of alcoholism and, and myself becomes very manipulative, and I would say that for a long time, you know, my emotions, my behaviors, were holding her hostage in that sense from an emotional standpoint. There's you know certain aspects of that kind of dependency that that my goal uh, through that process uh, is, and it's you know obviously difficult to talk about, but it, it's the realities of, of of the way of that you know of the disease of alcoholism is that you know we manipulate people into making sure that we can get our way, which is to get to the drink, and and she was willing to put up with that for, and, and I wouldn't have blamed her if she'd left at, you know, and, and that was where we were at at that, at that last point that she was going to, you know, she was ready to leave when I had that accident. And when, when that was, that was that, if I wasn't going to heal, she would have left. But at that point, again, it was, if she had left, if she had decided to leave me at that point, I would have certainly been hurt. I would have been lost from that perspective of me. But first and foremost in my life would have still had to be sobriety. Not getting her back, not doing that. That's where I, w- I was at. I would hope to think you know, that now my world has shifted to the extent that I am doing. I, I spend my life trying to pay that back to her for staying with me. Because I realized that her staying with me at that time was was toxic not on her part but on my part because it was uh because if 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 i look back at who i was and 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 who she was she should have left me um and uh and i can only be grateful that she did stay with me and and just and again try to offer her as good a life as as i can as her partner uh, as she offers to me as she continues to offer to me and perhaps she maybe saw that you were pretty serious and pretty committed and in fact I think your answer, which you've said it a couple times now, if in that moment you were kind of like, hey, I will do anything to keep you here, well, that actually would have been the wrong answer. Like the right answer was, 
first principle or first priority for me is I'm getting sober. Yes. And she yeah. heard that and apparently is super smart and wise and was like, well, that was the right answer. And so therefore I will, you know, stick, stick around and, and, and see how this goes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we definitely had that understanding early in, in sobriety and, and it took a lot of healing, uh, certainly for, from, from that time, because there was a lot of trust. I mean, a lot of trust that I'd broken, um, the whole idea that, that, you know, she learned that I drank and drive, she had to come to terms with the fact that I had done something that she had hated, you know, and, and, and so who was I? So, so there was a lot of healing that came from that. And also, you know, add that I have been, um, I've been going to therapy for, I had the same, same therapist for about 12 years. Um, and for two of those years, for the first two of those years, that therapist was with me while I was still drinking. So the reason I'm still with, with her is not just because she's, you know, we know each other well, but because she knows my bullshit from my drinking life, (laughs) she's able to call me out on that kind of stuff. So, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent for, for things like that, for, for, for therapy, community, and open and honesty, um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I think that's why I think our, my relationship with my wife is so much stronger today than it has been. It's because now, now we do have that, you know, dynamic of, of mutual trust and, and, uh, in honesty where we can share openly about that. And maybe there are conversations like this. You and I were talking before we, started recording and um and i just asked your opinion um because it it seems to me like we are living in a world where um people are sharing their stories more freely it feels like we are in a space where it is more accepted it is more appropriate it is more welcome it is maybe less scary to talk about some of these things and man for you know, look, <laughs> the world can be a tough place. And I think sometimes when people want to do the move where they're like, ah, everything's gone to hell in a handbasket, for all kinds of reasons, I just don't believe that. It feels like, again, we are not living in a perfect world by any means, but it does feel to me like on so many fronts, there is more of an openness. Um on just so many different fronts. And I think for people to get to hear people like you share your story, um, again, going back to for your first couple of decades, you're like, I didn't know that anxiety disorder was a thing, you know? And um, to me, this feels like a really positive development, perhaps in, I don't know, modern society, where there are more opportunities for stories like yours to be shared. There are more people willing to share on many different fronts. And I'm, I'm really grateful. I think whether it is somebody who very, um, very much, uh, sees themselves in your story or for some of us who maybe don't see ourselves in your story to better understand and empathize. It just seems like these are wins all around. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I agree that uh, that there definitely is more people sharing about that, and that's a good thing. Uh, I I think that that's that's exceptional because we are living in a world right now that where 
there's so many opportunities to experience this kind of anxiety. And, and, and I hear more often, maybe it's just because I'm more open about my story than, than, uh, but I hear more often of more people that are experiencing this, that, that are, that are having, you know, the anxiety or the depression over what they see or what, what the, the inputs are. There's so, we're so much stimulus that's hitting us at any given time. Uh, and, and, you know, it's one thing, one reason that I am so open about what, what I've been through is that it does also hold me accountable to continuing to take care of myself, uh, continuing to stay sober. I, you know, I got sober with Alcoholics Anonymous and there's no, you know, there's no secret that the second word in that, in that word is, or that uh, thing is anonymous. I'm open about my story because I actually feel that the, the openness about it is, is my way of, of, of staying sober. I, I, so I broke my anonymity. Not everybody does that and that's fine. Um, and so I think that for however many people are, are experiencing that and sharing openly, there's a lot more too that are experiencing it silently. And I, I really hope that we can reach them and just let them know that there's, that they're not alone. As some estimates say that 40 million Americans, and that's just in America, suffer from anxiety of some form. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of people that are dealing with it and, uh, and, and there's ways to make it empowering. How are you really spending your time and energy these days? And maybe we just think through the rest of 2022. I mean, there's maybe the normal everyday stuff you're doing, but like, what is really your kind of focus now? Is it still with improving times? Is it with your coaching? Like how, you know, like help me understand like what you're really jazzed about or the big projects that are really taking up your time and attention. Yeah. I, so right now, uh, um, aside from just working at my W2, which, you know, again, I work for a family business and, and, uh, um, and, and that takes up a lot of time and, and of course, spending time with my family and trying to, you know, uh, hang out with them. Uh, what I'm, what I'm, you know, what I'm really excited about is not necessarily the, the participation in triathlon. I, I realized too, that participating or, or trying to find better times now in triathlon is, is such a selfish pursuit. Even when I was going for Kona, what a selfish pursuit that is. But once I achieved it, you know, I achieved this dream. I proved to myself what I was capable of. Why would I want to do all that work to go back? And what would the purpose of that be? I mean, I understand that it's fun. There's a lot of greatness, but but really, I think that there's more to it. And and so I, I I wanted to take that knowledge and try to try to pass it on to other beginners. So things that I'm excited about are are I'm putting together you know programs to help beginners get started in triathlon. I have some of those on my website to to actually frameworks that help people get started in triathlon, get to their first sprint triathlon. I'm I'm really playing around with the idea of, of how we can how we can reframe anxiety into a superpower. And I want to articulate that a little bit better. But that that really drives me forward into ways that hopefully I can communicate with people and and uh, and engage with them and and hopefully help them to achieve that on their own as well. So to wrap up then, um, your book, Shifting Gears, preferred place for people to find that? Yeah, you can find it on Amazon. And uh, I have a link to that on my website, which is adamhilltry.com, T-R-I. And, uh, and there you can, and also there you can find out all about me, what, what I'm doing. If, if there's any engagements you can come to, but, uh, but yeah, reach out or get on, get on my contact list. I, I'm, and, and reach out to me. I'm happy to chat. I'm also on the socials if you want to find me there. Yeah. And what are, what's the handle? 
Oh, uh, at Adam Hill try is my Instagram handle. That's probably the easiest way to, to find me. Great. Okay. Last question. And I've been waiting quite a while now to ask you this, and I'm going to be a little disappointed if you don't have a, you know, a, a solid answer here. Yes. I'm wearing a speedo right now. No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I actually, you, you mentioned you played the cello. Now, I don't know if you've abandoned the cello or not, but do you have a strong opinion of Yo-Yo Ma versus Mstislav Rostropovich? Oh, that is a great question. Okay, Rostropovich for Baroque. The box suites by Rostropovich are are amazing. By far the best pieces ever. Uh, Yo-Yo Ma is an incredible performer, and and that's that's where he comes in, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, uh, nothing beats the the box suites by Rostropovich. You can I you and I can be friends going forward. <laughs> I Excellent. I, I had I first of all I don't know anything about the cello, but years ago I was in Belgium. I was thinking about going to grad school in Belgium, and a friend introduced me to Rostropovich's Bach cello suites, and so I had about a month where I was just listening to them on repeat. For like a month straight. And I used to get like, I then I heard Yo-Yo Ma's versions and I hated them. And then I like started hating Yo-Yo Ma and would get into these like, <laughs> like ridiculous, like fights over like, you can't like Yo-Yo Ma because his <laughs> Bach cello suites are so inferior to Rostropovich's. Then later, a number of years later, I learned that Yo-Yo Ma might be the nicest person in the world. And then mm-hmm. I felt awful for all the like, you know, nasty things I'd said about him. But when I love exactly how you framed it, because really all I really cared about was the Bach cello suites. And I didn't even lead you into that. And you, so we're good. You and yeah. I are good. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Yo-Yo Ma because he, he does a lot of very contemporary stuff and we're getting way off track. But yeah, it's fine. I, I, it's what we do. I think that, <laughs> I, yeah, he, he's, he works with some bluegrass bands and he mm. does some amazing, like inventive stuff if yeah. you're into it. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, the, the more traditional, like, yeah, Baroque classical, the farther back you go with the, with the repertoire, Rostropovich is better The the more contemporary, like I'd say romantic and, 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 uh, more recent Yo-Yo Ma's the man. Gotcha. Love it. Great answer. Um, Adam, thank you. This has been really fun. Um, it's great to learn more about your story and continued success with the work you're doing and the message that you continue to try to get out to people. And uh, this is just really good stuff. And and it's, well, frankly, it's always nice to hear somebody's story like this and to see the very positive turns they've made and not only for their own lives, but to help other people as well. So um, I guess I'll just end by saying, keep up the good work. Thanks. I, I, and thank you so much for having me on. It's been an honor. I, I, I really appreciate it. Pinch myself that I get to be here and, uh, and, and share with you. So I'm, I'm grateful for it. Well, good luck with everything going forward and hope we can uh, do this again down the line. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to thank Adam for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.